Hello, hello, Todd Mitchell here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown. If you listened to the last episode, you're up to speed and you got to hang out while I talked with our friend Sebastian Deacon, and together we came up with a game concept that I absolutely love. If you did not happen to catch that show, this might be a good time to skip back one, get up to speed, or parts of this show where we sort of go over what that project is might not make sense, might not totally make sense to you. Uh, I swear I never make that suggestion. People occasionally come to me and ask, hey, should I start your podcast with the first episode or the most recent one? And if there's someone I respect, I tell them don't do either one. But yes, once you know a little bit about what we came up with at the end of the last show, you will be ready for this breakdown of the first week or so of development for our Red Panda archaeology game. Let's get into it. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Okay, let's talk about bear escapes. That's a topic. First of all, in the middle of our design session last time, when we first came to the topic of cool animals to do a game about, I suggested a red panda right away. I mentioned that I did a report on them in school. You never really see them anywhere, and I don't know about them ever being in games. They certainly haven't been as often as they should. Anyway, I mentioned after I did that report as a kid, I saw one here at the local St. Louis Zoo, and I've been a fan of red pandas ever since. And it's funny that bears in the St. Louis Zoo comes up, Some of you might know where I'm going with this. A uh, big-ass four-year-old bear named Ben escaped his enclosure two separate times in February. He was kept in the River's Edge Immersion Exhibit, which is sort of a chance to see, like, pretty big, dangerous animals get pretty close to you, I'm I'm here to say. Everybody in St. Louis will tell you they love the zoo. I'm not here to defend zoos, but on the zoo scale... The St. Louis Zoo is considered one of the best in the world, has free admission, so if you're a parent, you try not to think too hard about the ethical situation, and you take your screaming kids to the zoo. So, yes, I know the zoo pretty well. The River's Edge is a relatively new exhibit, and it's this pretty long walking path that kind of cuts through the zoo, has these big wildlife exhibits, and you can see, like, elephants and hippos pretty close, and I, I thought all the bears were pretty cleanly separated from that whole thing. Apparently, Ben was all up in there until suddenly he wasn't anymore. And yes, that is a problem. A New York Post article points out that he was born in New York City and moved to St. Louis. So ironically, it's the opposite of what our guest Sebastian Deacon did. Born in St. Louis, moved to New York. Hopefully he's happier in his home than Ben was. So uh, anyway, Ben escaped for the first time on February 7th. The zoo added some kind of super strong like cargo clips to his enclosure. They were supposed to go really like full lockdown for this bear and nope. He escaped again on the 23rd, according to KMOV, which uh, you locals will recognize as like what channel Four? Yeah, KMOV. That's a, a big news channel out here. Ben was free for almost an hour and traveled something like 100 feet before they tranquilized him and did whatever you do with a loose bear in the zoo. I hear he's OK. They didn't put him down or anything like that. Uh, if you're listening to all this and going, hey, that's your game idea. I agree with you. Being a bear escaping a zoo or multiple zoos would be an amazing game, and without a doubt, I would enjoy the hell out of that. But we're well on our way with this current game, so let's get back to that. Real quick, though, if you're thinking, like, wow, loose bear in St. Louis, I'm here to tell you that happens a lot more than you think. Uh, I've maybe hinted at this on the show before. I've talked about it on other podcasts. 
But many years ago, Missouri hunters pretty much hunted down all the bears. So the dum-dums in charge thought, hey, let's bring like way too many bears from, I don't know, Arkansas, overpopulate the entire southern half of the state with fucking bears. And then those bears all started making their way north and what, east towards St. Louis. So a year or two ago, it started to be a real issue. My son and I uh, picked up disc golf during the pandemic and you go play disc golf at places like public parks, state parks, normal golf courses, all places that bears love. <laughs> so we didn't end up clearly spotting any before we moved back over here to Illinois. But there were a couple of times where I was responsible for a six or seven year old and I had to basically usher him away from somewhere quietly and calmly because I heard what sounded like a person walking through the woods and like breaking branches and all that. But it sounded like the person weighed like 500 pounds and it was in a place it made no sense for a person to be. So after one of those situations, I was there was a confirmed sighting like the next day. So shit almost got really weird. And I've got to say that particular case actually was just across the river here on the Illinois side. The bears are able to swim the Mississippi River and cross over into Illinois. So we have not escaped bear danger and they can easily follow us over. So there you go, bears. Let's talk about where we actually ended up after our co-design session with Sebastian in the last episode. One of the first things that Sebastian mentioned was that he liked RPGs, but wanted to steer clear of them because he was worried that he would like overload me. And I sort of let him know that, yeah, an RPG in a, in a matter of weeks is a tall order, but like a game that kind of plays like that, like an RPG, isn't impossible in a short amount of time. So we sort of agreed on a retro pixel art type situation pretty early on. And that that already gives like a pixel RPG vibe for sure. So I actually threw what Legend of Zelda for NES out there as an example what it could maybe look like. And Sebastian mentioned he was interested in exploring ideas that like didn't involve combat. I was on board with this because honestly, a lot of my games avoid combat and I'm happy to say I was kind of doing that before it was cool. So I don't have a huge issue with combat games. And if you want to make one, that's awesome. But I was part of a generation that came up with like so much in the way of like jumping on enemies, stabbing shit with a sword, blast your way through dungeons. You almost had to go out of your way to get beyond that and find other interesting game ideas. So it was just, it was almost like overexposure to it as a kid. So like, instead of Legend of Zelda, we switched into more of like a Stardew Valley direction. And if you want to argue there's no market for that, Stardew Valley, so you're wrong. We talked about plants and farming, but we agreed it would be tremendously complicated to do that in a short amount of time. We did talk about Animal Crossing. That's always a crowd pleaser, but uh, we got going on animals. That's when I brought up the red panda, but we needed something for an animal or multiple animals to do. We still kind of had farming and digging on the brain. And uh, so I asked, hey, has there ever been a really good archaeology game? The truth is, at the time I said, there is for sure on mobile, I'm sure. Like, and almost, there's almost nothing good on mobile. So it's it's really largely untapped. So from there, we explored what an animal archaeologist might be looking for. Finally, we landed on this killer concept. What if Animal Crossing villages lived on after players abandoned them? Like, what if the Earth just kind of like slowly reclaimed them? And what if you could rediscover a village where animals and people work together? Like you just you uncovered it piece by piece. So suddenly a game full of various animals kind of makes sense, right? And it can be part of telling a story, which is nice. 
So yes, the killer concept was a red panda archaeologist who's called to a remote village where the villagers began to discover strange artifacts and they want to learn what happened on this land long ago. So we love that idea, but there are a lot of, there's still a lot of questions about what to do in a top-down pixel art archaeology game. So we wanted the game to be relatively low pressure so we can focus on storytelling. The player can take things at their own pace, but I, I think maybe managing or collecting funding might make for an interesting experience, like a, like a fun and challenging game. Like you can collect money, you can earn it by completing smaller jobs. You can clear the way to finish the big jobs. And throughout that, you can sort of tell the story. So I, I thought this does have the right elements in it. Most importantly, there is going to be tool use, loads of storytelling. And this idea kind of lends itself really well to the cataloging that Sebastian described very early on, said he liked cataloging games, stuff like that. I think he said collecting and cataloging. Uh, I felt like I knew enough about the mechanics from this concept that I had a very specific thing I could work on. And we would reach a point where we'd have a character who could interact with a small test world, probably just on one screen. And we could figure out what to do with them after that as we go. But the first problem was we needed that character. Okay, obviously character design is important everywhere, but I think it might be especially important in a retro pixel art game. And it's an area where you're going to get the least amount of help. And what I mean by that is these days, if you want to make a pixel art game quickly, there are like a million free resources out there. Uh, for this project, I lean pretty heavily on sprite sheets from uh, Kenny.nl. Shout out to Asset Jesus. But in general, you probably want to figure out the actual character on your own. So uh, let's talk for a minute about philosophy. I promise we're not going to get too deep into that. But what does it mean to really design a character for this game? We know we want pixel art. We know we want animals that walk around and interact like people uh, the way they do in games like Animal Crossing. We're not going to continue to lean on Animal Crossing forever. Obviously, we can't in a game project, but uh, it was an inspiration. And so it's OK to talk about that. But that helps inform our style right away. We're going to try to lean in the direction of like cuteness over the direction of realism or the direction of an animal that might attack you. Uh, I'm not a brilliant cartoonist either, but I do know some of the tricks for creating a character like that. So a major one is to use like big heads on little bodies. And that lets you be very expressive, give them big eyes, and uh, hopefully it simplifies what you need to do with the rest of the body. Wardrobe is also a common sense place to uh, do some design work. You dress your character for the part they play, obviously, but there are more subtle things you can consider. Uh, like my main character is wearing cargo shorts. He's got an open button down with rolled up sleeves and like an Indiana Jones type hat. So in my mind, he has some flaws. He's less like a famous archaeologist with his shit together. And he's more like me trying to do the job of a famous archaeologist who is supposed to have his shit together, but just doesn't quite. So for me, that creates a little more accessible conflict. So that's a well you can draw from. Maybe he proves himself over the course of the game. Maybe what's interesting is that he almost blows it at some point. I'm leaving room to play with that as a designer. So similarly, the only other character I've designed so far is his boss, Dr. Providence Burroughs. Big shout out to Sebastian on those names. Dr. B is a cat. That was my contribution. Uh, Sebastian thought that she could be modeled after Dr. Temperance Brennan from Bones. And I have not watched much of that show, so I don't know how to get her mannerisms involved. But 
There was a nice convenient connection when I saw that her character on the show wears professional attire that's still sort of action ready. So like nice blouses with like jeans and, and stuff like that. So a simple screenshot of her conveys that she has her shit together. But she's also ready to kick a little ass. So in contrast to Doug, like maybe he's a tad sloppy. I drew her a couple of pixels slimmer. She looks better put together than he does. Those were all conscious choices that I made that leave room to create conflict. And hey, maybe as we're digging further into the story, we decide that there's not time or there's no room to explore that or we just decide to focus elsewhere. That's great. No problem. People who are very different routinely get along, work together, they get married, they live beautiful lives together. It happens all the time. But the important thing is we didn't make two of the same people with slightly different faces or jackets of a different color and then call it a game. Like, we have options. To go from concept to actual game-ready pixel art, as most of you know, it usually means you need to put together a sprite sheet with your character in pretty much every pose that you want to use at any point in your game. So a, a good engine in this day and age will have good tools that help you take care of the rest from there. We did talk about this a little bit like two episodes ago. I'm going to go ahead and talk a little more about it now that I can show off a lot of it in the episode. There is an important problem I had to solve with that technique that I described in that earlier show. So the first thing we talked about was how I suck as an artist. That is still very true. I'm a little more capable here now that I'm practicing regularly. I'm staying a little sharper. But to get some of that confidence back, I decided that I would do the first character using vector art that I would have a little more control over using Affinity Designer. So uh, you can also do this for free with Inkscape. And I think maybe Krita, but don't quote me on that one. There are free options for vector art. So with vector art, you can make lines, basic lines, basic shapes. And using the little nodes, you can control the size, the scale, the, the shape of that. And you have perfect control over what you end up with. You don't have to do these perfect strokes. You can adjust as long as you want. It scales perfectly to any size, which is nice. And whatever you come up with stays very modifiable forever. So if I want to come back later and change something or explore different poses, props, outfits, it's all pretty easy to do. It takes a little longer this way. And if you don't need to use this method. That's great. For me, I wanted a pretty fleshed out reference before I tried this at a small scale doing like little pixel graphics. When that was done, I was ready to hit GIMP where I made my sprite sheets. Let me say this here. If you're nervous about your abilities when doing pixel art, and if you like digital books, let me give a quick shout out to the book Pixel Logic, A Guide to Pixel Art, which is available on Gumroad. Uh, I downloaded this book years ago. And I, I revisited the first few chapters before I started drawing over my reference art. And you shouldn't blame the author for anything you notice about my style or errors you might spot. But the techniques I learned there did help me do drawings at several sizes in pixel art that I'm really comfortable with. And for me, that's a big deal. So I did a full sprite sheet for Doug. I did one pose for Dr. B because she was going to be started as a pretty simple PC just kind of standing there. And I, uh, I plugged those characters in and I got going. Awesome. Mostly awesome. This is where that chat from two episodes ago comes in. I seem to remember explicitly saying I had done some math to decide how much of the screen, especially vertically, I wanted my characters to take up. So I used that math to decide how big my sprites were going to be. There was a small flaw in that thinking, and it's exactly the kind of problem you can expect when you're rusty at all this the way I am. Basically, if you pick a pixel size and density that isn't directly connected to the size 
of the tiles in the sprite sheet that you're using to make your backgrounds and your props, it's not going to look right. And that's what happened to me. I had a very nice, very detailed, well-animated character that I that didn't look anything like the world he was in. And that was my fault. Kenny's sprite sheets always look really nice, but they achieved that look through minimalism at low resolution. So I was feeling kind of insecure, worried about my ability to do that. So I went in and went, no problem, like 64 by 64 character sprites. And that ended up clashing super hard with my test scene. I did end up keeping that art on hand. It's going to work out a little later. So there's a nice little lesson in the story here in a bit. But I also had to scale that art down even further and redraw it at 16 by 16, which matches the background sprites. So then in the engine, I could scale those sprites back up to the magnitude I was sort of scaling the others. Then suddenly everything fit together. It, was, it looked pretty nice. It looked like it was seamlessly created together. I Suddenly it looked like I was creating new stuff for Kenny's little world of sprite sheets that he designed. And that's what you want in a situation like that. So also don't make one other silly mistake I made. I had to go back and fix this. Even if you know you're going to use sprites larger than the size that they were drawn at, Know that the Godot engine and a lot of other engines can handle that for you. Don't upscale them in GIMP or Photoshop or whatever. Not only is it a pointless waste of memory, it also gets very difficult to be precise when you're trying to use the scaled up pixels in engine and you're trying to specify regions in the sheet that you want to use for individual objects or like parts of larger objects later. If you're looking to do a game with tile maps and sprite sheets in Godot, you don't need to separate them externally and you don't need to scale them. Uh, Godot can do all that for you and it won't just be easier, but you'll avoid a lot of overhead waste. Just pop those sheets in there and start making a game, which is exactly what you want. So let's talk about those tile maps. There are a few ways to use tile sets in 2D games. One, you can just use them in your favorite photo editor like GIMP to make big backgrounds, and you can just feed those into your engine of choice. It's not ideal in terms of reusability and overhead, but I'm saying it's a thing you can do. If you're just getting started with this kind of thing, this can feel like a way to get started easily, and honestly, it is. So I would say if this is the difference between you starting to work on a game or being too nervous and not trying it at all, jump in and run with it. No big deal. There are programs that let you feed a tile sheet in in the form of one big image file and it'll let you configure some settings and then spit out like different kinds of data files you can use in your game where the game engine is supposed to read maybe like an XML file or something like that and you use that to construct your level out of the sheet. It's cool when it works, but there's a ton to learn and usually you're learning a lot of very specific stuff about a program you may or may not use in the future and I don't like to do that. Worst of all, your engine or framework may not have a ready-made way to read those files or put them to use, and then you would need to program a parser for them. And that is super deep, dicey, technical work. So in the best case scenario, your engine can deal with a tile sheet and help you do pretty much everything right there. Uh, Godot is that way, but I had to kind of learn how you're supposed to do that. So as some of you know, basically everything in the Godot game is scenes made of nodes, just like all the way up and down the hierarchy. Uh, Godot has a tile map node, so you can add that to your scene and use that node to create a new tile set and lets you specify which parts to draw. So that part was easy. You have to fiddle around with the settings a little bit if you're scaling up your tiles to use them larger than they're drawn, but that's fully possible. That works very well. 
most games usually aren't as simple as one flat image of different files. So most of the time you want to use layers of tiles so you can have like trees on top of grass. Uh, you want certain tiles to have collisions so the player like can't walk through a tree. I have to say here I'm using Godot 3.5.1. I am not using any of the 4.0 builds yet. Okay, now I wrote my notes for this right before Godot 4.0 was released. Godot 4.0 was just released as of like two days ago. So it looks a, it looks like a lot of this changes in 4.0. So take this with a grain of salt. I'm just giving you, and I know specifically the tile map system is greatly changed for as of for right now in the version that I'm working in, because I am not starting over. <laughs> I've done a, a week plus of work at this point. We're going to ride this thing out in Godot 3.5.1, and I will look forward to learning four in a future project. So as for right now, the easiest way for me to set this up was to create two of those tile map nodes the background layer is very simple. Then I created a props tile map node and set that tile set to look at the same sheet. But the uh, tile set editor also has collision tools you can use to take one square and go, this is a tree. This has a collision shape that's uh, skinny at bottom, big on top, however you want to set it up. And this worked perfectly for me. Eventually, let's talk about collisions. So top-down RPG collisions are a little bit more complicated than you might think at first glance. You're going to have certain tiles you want to collide with every time, like trees, and you want some way not to have to manually put a collision box around every tree in the game as you place it, especially if you're thinking about any kind of procedurally generated content. So you're going to have to use some brick wall style colliding. Simple enough, right? But that's not all. You also need what some other engines and frameworks like to call trigger collisions. You need to be able to pass through certain spaces, but have those spaces react to you. So a good example is like objects you can interact with or players you can talk to. As you get close to those objects, you need trigger collisions where you can press a button to interact with them. Or if those spaces stop you like a brick wall, it's not gonna work right. It'd be confusing to play that way. Things are tricky here because you're really not using most of the physics engine, but you are using collision shapes and function calls and maybe signals back and forth too. So I went through Godot's tutorial called Your First 2D Game, and that's how I set up my character movement and my project. This was good at first because it uses a player that has uh, up, down, left, and right movement, basic animations, it has collisions. The problem is that that tutorial shows you how to set up area 2D collisions, which are good for the, the pass-through kind of collision, but the tile map system sets up static body colliders by default, or uh, kinematic colliders if you uh, change that in the settings. So to try to clarify this part here so we can move on, you basically want a static body node on anything that isn't moving and your player can't pass through. Your player should have a kinematic body node that you will be moving through code then you can use an area node to pick up signals when it touches another uh, collision body. And that means your player, or at least my player, will have two types of collision detection nodes. One to touch walls and trees and stop immediately without passing through. And then another that acts as kind of a trigger that can run code when it touches certain other kinds of objects. So if this explanation sounds a little advanced for me, that is because it is. I sort of had to like not reverse engineer but maybe reverse understand 
uh, how this was set up from a very helpful asset library project in Godot called Top Down Action RPG Template by a user called Noid EXE. Uh, if you know Godot, you know you can uh, pick that tab. Instead of opening a project, you can go to the Asset Library tab and you can search for stuff. And this came right up for me, this top-down action RPG template. Anyway, that template project was amazing. It's been very helpful. You can run it straight out of the box. You can play a little demo of this RPG about bugs. It's kind of funny. It has great examples of character nodes set up. It's got UI, dialogue you can look at all those systems in place. So that's highly recommended if you find yourself doing a project like this and want to see something set up better than how I'm probably going to do it. So yes, I opened up his player scene and saw that indeed his player was using a kinematic body node to collide against solid objects. He moved the player in script using move and collide. That's important. Uh, kinematic body collisions only work if you use either move and collide or move and slide one of those methods, depending on uh, how you want the body to react when colliding. So once I got these nodes set up, soon I was able to collide against my trees and my walls. I could grab pickups when I was walking around, and then I could get close to an interactable object and have an input prompt show up right at the uh, right proximity and then disappear when I got further away from it. Perfect. Uh, to do anything with those pickups or those interactable objects, though, I had to get my UI started. So let's talk about that. I am still fairly early on in my UI work, so I want to be measured in what I say and suggest here. But so far, it is about the easiest UI system I've ever had to work on. Uh, I've worked with Unity a lot, and I seriously dislike their UI system. I don't remember much about my UI attempts from uh, my Unreal days. I have scripted games myself. I have worked as a web designer, which is a whole different show. Uh, I can't remember having an easier time with UI features ever. So top marks on that. I started with a small status bar at the top of the screen where I wanted to show currency, which I'm calling funding right now, because that seems like a good problem for an archaeologist to deal with, funding. So if he picks up something or earns something right now, it's added to his funding, which is uh, set up as a global. What I've found is that if you have good UI tiles split up in your tile sheet, like you usually will with Kenny Asset Packs, you can make great use of his uh, split up panels like uh, use two end pieces and stretch a middle piece across whatever uh, space you want to use and get a really nice looking bar to put text over. Uh, he has fonts on his website that, uh, again, Kenny.nl. Uh, they look great in this project. Um, when I added a simple animation player, I was able to create a cool system, uh, for example, where you can walk over a coin to pick it up. And that amount pops up under the status bar that shows you the quantity, and then it fades out nicely after about a second. That was all very intuitive. Next, I tackled showing simple prompts, almost like a uh, panel with a notice to the player. So uh, my test feature was a little notice that if Doug doesn't have a shovel yet and he tries to interact with a dig pile, it says, you can't dig without a shovel. And it shows the button to uh, press to hide the message. That did work, but it revealed a little sticking point. First, Godot has a very nice feature on its text labels called percent visible uh, is the name of the property. And you can animate this property to go from zero to one. Yes, I recognize that is not how percents work. But as that property value increases, it looks like the message is being typed out, which is a cool way to simply animate your UI stuff and make it a little more interesting. So now for the problem, the input system. 
it's very possible I don't have my input system set up in the optimal way, but I followed the early Godot tutorials to do it, and I'm finding that I'm having to do a lot of dancing around to keep my UI messages from opening and immediately closing, or closing and immediately reopening during the same button press. So first of all, Godot has a very nice built-in pause feature to stop scenes, and you can control how each thing in your scene reacts to that, uh, whether it stops or keeps processing input, and so on. So I thought that might help, but the way that it flows, it still ends up kind of being a problem. Um, right now I'm having to set like a just opened flag and check if it's true before it allows prompts to open or close. And I'm also using the uh, input just released method to open UI prompts and input just pressed to close them again. So logically, I don't think that still completely solves it, but combined with the flags on both ends, it seems to be working for the moment. Uh, I'm not completely satisfied with that solution, but I am still looking for a better answer. So. Anyway, uh, I also took the time to shut off the player's input prompt right before opening a UI prompt so that there wouldn't be two competing prompts showing on the screen. Uh, and I had the UI throw a signal that the player picks up when a prompt is closing so that the uh, player object knows to show that input prompt on the player again until he walks outside that interact radius. Uh, that is prompts out of the way. Next up was a full dialogue system and possibly inventory and purchasing systems. As for the dialogue system, I figured I would do it myself to try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, I'd kind of rather spend the time doing it myself and fully understand what it does than to sink that time into learning again, someone else's scene, someone else's code, and uh, have all that mystery under the hood. So to get started, we get to build something similar to the uh, prompt feature, but we want to add a little more information like the name of who's talking, maybe a picture. Here's where some good luck came in. We can revisit that pixel art problem I mentioned earlier, because when I said I needed to redesign characters to use smaller sprites so they would look right against the backgrounds, right? Here in the dialogue system, it's actually a perfect time to bring those bigger, more detailed sprites back. Uh, the result is that you get a much better idea of what the character looks like in detail when they speak to you. If this feels familiar to you, it might be because Stardew Valley does exactly this to fantastic effect. As most of you know, modern pixel art games are kind of a lie. We like the art style, but it's not like the characters aren't moving perfectly smoothly across the screen. It's not really chopped up into a matrix of dots. We like the look of pixel art and is still a very efficient way to design and reuse assets for 2D games. But there's no reason not to find smart ways to embrace modern technology. So if you look at dialogue examples from Stardew, you can see those super detailed characters that are almost barely even pixel art. They're so dense, uh, layered over the more pixelated, smaller characters in the in the game scene. So uh, this is a great way to do this. And I didn't plan it this way, but that's what we ended up with here, too. I mentioned this before, but I made the UI a global scene or an auto load in uh, Godot terminology, meaning any object or character can kick off a UI event when it's appropriate. So something that popped up here was that if you create a new scene in Godot and click user interface for the root node like I did, that root node is going to be a control type. This doesn't sound important, but it's important to know because it'll probably look right when you first start working with it. But if you add it to auto loads, which I think is fairly common for UI uh, code, 
you you might find that it's not visible any longer because it isn't displayed on the top layer of the scene. Uh, I found out that's because creating the UI that way does not add it to a canvas layer node. And a, a canvas layer node is what is the thing that gets drawn on top. So I feel like the more I work with Godot, the less I can trust those default root nodes buttons when I uh, create a new scene. They're almost never what you want. So that seems like weird design. Maybe it's just because I don't use it the way I'm intended. I'm not sure, but it is something to be aware of if you're anything like me. Anyway, so I'm, I'm at the point right now where I need the player to be able to choose from multiple possible responses to something a character says and kick off different code depending on what response is chosen. So again, I want to keep that simple, but it's going to be at least a little complicated no matter what. Uh, this is one of those problems that takes more thinking time than development time. So the internet at large seems to be very divided about this. The people who have had success in building something, many of them have repackaged it for distribution and personal glory, and that's all fine. Again, I don't want to sink that kind of time into learning someone else's custom tool. So also a lot of the energy is spent on deciding how to simply store the information, like the quotes and responses and functions and stuff, which I don't particularly care about. Like, even if we shipped this game fully realized, I would still probably be fine hard coding the actual quotes and whatnot. I, I don't see much value in introducing a new file type into the game so I can have that all separate separated out. It would be good for localization. That's an important thing. So if you're thinking shipping, charging this, making it available worldwide, be a good steward of your code, do localization. I think that's why a lot of folks put value on that method. I don't think we're going to get to do that for this little jam project. So into the code it goes. We have reached the task I'm currently working on, which is this this part of the dialogue system. So I can't say for sure this is going to work. But my instinct here is to create a custom class called something like quote. This quote class can store a name, a text string, an array of response strings, and maybe an array of strings of uh, method names to call if the matching response is selected. So any character who has something to say can have like a current quote property. And that quote can be ready to go if Doug walks up and presses the interact button to interact with them. To do that, I'll have to design the UI system to show a quote. And then uh, either be ready to show a close prompt like uh, the notice feature, or if there are different responses available, loop through those and display an option for each one. So it'll need to be flexible enough to keep that dialogue open and updated as it as is needed. When responses come through, um, I'm guessing I might encounter more button press trouble. So maybe I'll figure, maybe I'll get to the bottom of that while I'm working on that part. But I do need to take it one step at a time and just deal with the issues as they come up. So in my head, I've kind of been thinking, oh, once I get that done, we can pretty much make the rest of the game. The truth is we committed to making this game about collecting and examining and cataloging things. So the inventory system is actually going to be pretty crucial. It should be easier once I've got this part of the UI figured out. Um, a buy screen is probably going to be a thing also, so I'll have to figure those out too. But uh, we're, we're close. The mechanics are... I wanted the mechanics to be done for this part, but we're so close. And after that, we get to move on to, uh, you know, story, pure gameplay stuff, and how we want this thing to actually play.
So uh, I'm ha- <laughs> in closing, uh, I'm happy to say that Sebastian is looking forward to helping lay out the story and figure out how that's going to go. I'm hoping I can get his feedback on things like the full map layout, ideas for gameplay features, how they should work and all that. I will shoot for very close to weekly progress episodes throughout the project, whatever amount of time. So I hope that was okay. I hope this was interesting or helpful or at least made you laugh at how I'm like stumbling my way through this. I'm having the greatest time. Uh, It's so much fun to do. It's so much fun to talk about. If you did enjoy any of this, please consider hitting follow or subscribe. Reviews on the podcast always help. Uh, You can see show notes, articles, and more at CodeWritePlay.com. Full video shows are both on Spotify and YouTube at this point. So if you want to find the show on social, you can go to Twitter, for example, and follow GameDevPod at CodeWritePlay or me at MechaToddZillow with one D and two L's. Thank you so much to everybody who's been so enthusiastic about the recent changes, which has been just about everyone. That is a big deal for me. The numbers are going up. That's a big deal. So keep those good vibes coming. Let me know what you're up to and I will return the favor next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody.